0: Kubernetes has created a widespread system for deploying and managing infrastructure. As Kubernetes has been increasingly adopted, companies are thinking about how to leverage that common layer of infrastructure. With the common infrastructure abstraction of Kubernetes, it becomes easier to adopt other abstractions that are uniform across the entire company. And this has created a market opportunity for products such as a service mesh. A service mesh consists of sidecar containers that get deployed alongside services in a distributed system. These sidecar containers often get deployed in the same pod as the other Kubernetes containers. A pod is something that contains multiple containers, or just one container. Each sidecar container is used as a proxy for all the communications that go through the service that it is deployed with. This consistent proxying layer provides each service with benefits such as security and routing and telemetry and policy management, and we've done many previous shows about service mesh. Istio is a service mesh that was created and open-sourced by Google. Istio is built around the Envoy Service Proxy sidecar and a control plane that manages the Envoy sidecars. Since the launch of Istio, some of the Google employees who were working on Istio have started Tetrate, a company with the goal of commercializing Istio into a product that enterprises will pay for. The market demand for service mesh has been proven, but there are many competitors to Tetrate. Istio is open source and can be commercialized by other companies, as well as cloud providers such as Google and AWS. Linkerd is a service mesh built by the company Boyant, which was the first company to focus exclusively on this space. There are other companies that are expanding existing products into becoming a Service Mesh. These are companies like Kong and Nginx and HashiCorp. Zach Butcher is a founding engineer with Tetrate, and he joins the show to discuss the market for Service Mesh and the plan for Tetrate to build a business around Istio. Quick announcement, we are hiring for two roles, a content writer and an operations lead. If you like to write about software engineering, and you have some familiarity with software engineering, maybe you're a computer science student, maybe you're an experienced engineer, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. And also the operations lead role is for somebody who is interested in learning more about how to run a business, how to run a podcast, and who wants to help us improve our operations. You can also send me an email if you're interested in that, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I love software architecture. Software architecture is the high-level perspective of how to build software systems. Much of Software Engineering Daily is about software architecture. And if you're interested in software architecture, there's no better place to go to discuss and learn about software architecture than the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, which is coming to New York February 23rd through 26th of 2020. If you are interested in software architecture, you can go to SE daily. That link is in the show notes. And you can get 20% off your ticket to the Software Architecture Conference. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is a great place to learn about the high-level perspectives and the implementation details of microservices, cloud computing, serverless, and also systems like machine learning and analytics. If you've been listening to Software Engineering Daily for a while, you know that these systems are hard to build, and they take engineering details at both the high level and at the low level. Whether you're a seasoned architect or an engineer that is just curious about software architecture, and maybe you want to become a software architect, you can check out the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference at OReillySACon.com SE SEDaily. Use the discount code SE20 and get 20% off your ticket. There are lots of reasons to go to the Software Architecture Conference. There's networking opportunities. There are plenty of talks and training opportunities. And you can get 20% off by going to O'ReillySACon.com SEDaily and entering discount code SE20. I've been going to O'Reilly conferences for years, and I don't see myself stopping anytime soon because they're just a great way to learn and meet people. So check it out, and thanks to O'Reilly for being a longtime sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Zach Butcher, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to start with the subject of microservices because we're at KubeCon and I know that most people here believe that microservices is something that everyone should work towards having. The idea of putting a lot of effort into building a microservices architecture, this has a cost. So, if you put a bunch of effort into replatforming your entire architecture into Kubernetes and a CICD workflow that's kind of complicated, and you adopt a service mesh, if you want to do all that... It's you, a lot of complexity, yeah. it's a, Not only is it a lot of complexity, it's an opportunity cost mm-hmm. because you're giving up building business logic. Yeah. Yep. And customers may or may not want yeah. a... Microservices platform. They probably don't even care. Yeah. All they want is more functionality, and and replatforming doesn't really help with that. Why should we spend so much time, or who should be spending time building out a microservices architecture?
1: Yeah. So, just like any technology, right? You don't want to go grab like in our industry as software engineers, we really like to grab the new shiny toys because they're new and shiny and exciting, right? Doesn't really work for a business, right? So a lot of so as we look at what actually matters with respect to this decision, am I going to take my monolithic architecture that I, or, or whatever my current architecture is that I've been running, that I hopefully am pretty comfortable running and fundamentally change it and add in a, probably a lot of complexity. It's a really tough thing to weigh. And by and large, the overriding factor that, that we've seen from, from our customers and just talking across the industry is this kind of idea of uh, development agility, right? We want to go faster is the is kind of the the calling card. And the idea is this. My customers want features. They don't care what how I'm running my infrastructure. They don't care what I, but they want to do more things in my software today. And I try, so I try and get my developers to do more things in the software today, but they wind up because of the way that we've decided to deploy our software is like one bundled unit together. And maybe we don't, we haven't invested in things like high-level traffic control. Maybe we're only doing, you know, we don't have fine-grained control to be able to do things like canaries or, or gradually deploy new traffic. So changes are kind of risky because this big blob that, you know, 10 or 20 different teams have contributed to this big monolithic thing has to go out. And I know I made some changes to my part of it. I'm sure some of the other teams made changes to their parts but Hopefully it all plays well. And so this becomes a very risky thing, right? And, and really the, the result is some ossification. Right. I can't because it's risky to change and it's, you know, my customers want new features, but they want to be able to use the product first. Right. And so if I'm having outages, if I'm if I'm not able to serve my my products because I'm updating and updates are risky and, and, and they go bad, then I'm not in a good state. So I have to be able to de-risk change. I need to be able to decouple my teams from each other so that they can move and operate independently. Right. Not everybody needs to change at the same rate but some pieces of the product probably need to undergo a very rapid rate of change and you don't want them to be gated on everybody else and you don't want to force everybody else to go up tempo because of the one team right and so this is really where the idea of splitting these these components apart at a deployment level right literally taking the code and splitting it into separate pieces that run separately and that communicate with each other, and, and because you're splitting them apart now, so that is the fundamental challenge, right? So we need we need to split them apart so that teams can go faster, and that introduces effectively all of the complexity that KubeCon here we're talking about the the you know Istio the project we'll talk about in a bit that I work on uh, helps to address right this the fact that suddenly now because I've decoupled my my programs to decouple my teams. The network is a fundamental part of my of my application now.
0: So this is a nice story. I've definitely heard it before. And I know it has been applied successfully at Google, at Netflix, maybe at Uber. Although I think Uber has, they've, I've talked, spoke to an engineer there who is a little bit remorseful about the the, the microservices decision i don't really yeah. know i mean i honestly don't know really what the alternative is to a microservices architecture i mean it's m- maybe like being comfortable with having five or six giant monoliths and then other smaller services like
1: yeah in the reality
0: is i think it's it's
1: some mix so larry peterson is the guy that is the cto of the open networking foundation and they're responsible for a bunch of telecom networking standards, but they're also played a really big part, for example, in the development of software-defined networking. Mm. And that is one of the key enabling technologies of of the of cloud, really. And he, I think, actually gets at kind of what you're a little bit of what you're talking about in a very succinct way, which is he talks about the <laughs> we disaggregate to innovate, but we have to re-aggregate to operationalize. And this starts to get at some of at some of this kind of core idea of why do we have to do this process and we see this repeated across industry we as software engineers we complain about the cyclic nature of our industry right we complain that kafka looks a lot like service buses right and like you know but and we learned that enterprise service buses are bad so why are we back into this architecture again? And the answer is that we're not really back into the same architecture. We've learned uh, and made changes along the way. Right? We go through this cycle where we have a system. We we really only know how to operate holistic systems. That's why monoliths are so nice because they're one piece and so they're they're easy easier to understand and operate when I disaggregate it, when I break it apart, I can change it more rapidly, but it's so hard to operate. We're really, really bad. And when I say we, I mean like across the board, not just talking about microservices, but in general, in software engineering and human, I mean like human culture, we're not as good at dealing with aggregate with disaggregated pieces than we are with holes, right? We're used to lumping things together so that we can mentally treat them in one way. And so this is kind of some of that fundamental tension, I think, is, is that we see in our software development is this cycle of, well, we went to microservices and we had to do that because we had to innovate because we had to disaggregate so that the individual pieces could move faster. But now it hurts until you talk to a software engineer who goes, "I don't like the service mesh. I don't like this this microservice idea because the operational tools aren't there. Right? Like we can barely debug concurrent programs on one computer, and now you're saying we're going to split it apart onto you know in different computers and they're going to communicate." Communicate over the network to to do this stuff. It's a real tooling problem, in part, and some of that acute pain, at least, I think that we hear about in that's that knee jerk reaction to the to the architecture, right?
0: What I'm trying to understand is how successful has this microservices mass migration been? Because I feel like there's some survivorship bias. Like we yeah, come sure. we, we, we we come to KubeCon and we see five or six talks about you know. Like Lyft's journey to microservices, or you know Zendesk breaking up our monolith into microservices, and uh, to uh, till we have you know ninety nine percent of our services, you know each occupying one percent of the overall infrastructure, and we've got it evenly distributed, yeah, that's perfection across, like, yeah, perfect, yeah that's, perfectly load balanced. And you never hear the stories of we spent two and a half years trying to make this thing work and ended up going back to COBOL.
1: Yeah, totally. So I mean, like, so I can say from like the perspective of the products that Tetrate is building and shipping, I'm building a monolithic binary right now, because it's easier to operate, right? The again, the operational side of it is is easier. I haven't hit the pain points that that would necessitate mm. needing to split up into into many different binaries yet, right? My teams are still able to ship features independently of each other fast at a rate that is fast enough that we feel comfortable, things like that. But from an operational perspective, it's just easier. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people, right? I really do. Like the by and large use case for microservices, I think, really is a small, a small number of companies, a small, and, and it's those ones that are that are larger. Again, it's ones that are large enough to have the organizational pain yeah. of how do we get these teams to operate together, right? right? It's it's really it's really not a technical problem, right? Microservices do not solve any; they do not really solve any technical problem that you have, and instead they introduce a whole lot of them. But they solve organizational problems that you have, and that's why people are moving to them—the mm-hmm. organizational side of it, mm-hmm. right? And it's the the technical side is a cost that we have to overcome to enable the the organization, right? And you know, and there's a lot of ideas around the different. You you led off with the what are some different architectures, for example, that people are looking at, right? And there, this is where there's a lot of work in the space, right? Yeah. So we were talking before we started recording, we mentioned just a little bit about Knative and like Open Paths, for example, and so the whole serverless paradigm is one. Uh, reaction to this, this pain, right? Uh, and it goes maybe even more extreme, <laughs> you know, in, in that we're going to take our units of code that we cut up and we're going to cut them up even smaller. That's not necessarily required for a serverless, right? But, you know, so that's one reaction that people are having. Another reaction is the return of the monolith, right? And again, this is, I view this as part of that cycle of, of disaggregation and re-aggregation, mm-hmm. right? It's not necessarily a bad thing that we go back to a monolithic deployment, if we can maintain the advantage of having decoupled development teams and it turns out that there are, you know there's for example sets of techniques that we can use to do this right so i can have everybody develop independent services but maybe stitch them together into one binary that you know in the main and make it communicate locally rather than over over a network right and now i have some of the operational benefits of having a monolithic deployment but i can maybe get also win some of the benefits of having my teams decoupled from each other. If we can work out that sticky mess around how we do deployments and how we, we keep the rate of change fast enough for the for the entire organization, right?
0: You're coming at this from a pretty interesting perspective because you worked at Google. You were working on Istio in the early days. You worked with Varun, who I've interviewed on the show a couple of times. Yeah. And eventually he left and you left. You guys were both part of the founding team of Tetrate, which works on service mesh and related technologies. And the advantage of being on your own in a startup is you are forced to go and talk to customers and really extract the truth from them because it's existential. Exactly, It's existential for you as a startup, whereas if you're at a big company, like I'm sure you guys were trying hard, but you don't necessarily need to get the straight answers because your salary is going to be there whether or not... Yeah, that's one of my... You know, this is
1: one of the fundamental takeaways uh, about Tetrate, the company, coming from Google, right? Because both Rune and I came came from Google and he had been there for a decade, right? I I had only been there for three and a half years. Uh, But, you know, both of us have been there for a while. Uh, But you go talk to an Amazon engineer and... Almost every single sentence has the word customer in it that they say, right? If you go talk to a Google engineer, you never hear the word customer ever, right? And this was one of my... I'm the ad side of the house. Exa- well, yes. And the one side of the house that is customer oriented is ads. And they're good at it. Yeah. and the rest of the organization is not because that's <laughs> fundamentally not what they've been built and equipped. Well, to. their customer is the engineer. Exactly, right? And so,
0: the, yeah. And and selling, to, selling directly to engineers that live inside of your organization who are not paying you money precisely. is very different than selling to enterprises. Precisely. And so this
1: was one of my single biggest takeaways personally leaving Google, right? So Google's a, a magnificent place to go learn a whole bunch of different things. But for me personally, this was the most important thing that I took away was that, you know, Tetrate had to be a customer focused company. It is an existential problem, exactly like you say, right?
0: So when you go out and have those conversations, when you talk to these enterprises and and you say, look, I know there's a lot of technological change going on right now in your infrastructure, you're looking at Kubernetes, you're looking at three gigantic cloud providers, and a bunch of adjunct cloud providers. You're looking at a bajillion little vendors that are selling you monitoring software and logging software and this software and that software. And then you go into security and you got another 500 grand that you're going to need to spend. Yeah. When that's you, some pretty cheap security you're getting. Oh, yeah, that's okay, sure. Yeah, five hundred grand. <laughs> that's much. That's not very realistic. But so, so, but your specific category is kind of new. The idea of yeah. service mesh. Mm-hmm. So when you talk to them and you say, like, what do you actually want? We, we are a quote unquote service mesh company, but maybe we can do other things. What do you want from us? What do they say? And by the way, what kinds of enterprises are we talking about? We're we talking about banks. We're we talking about insurance yeah, companies. Yeah. What are we talking about? Yeah.
1: So. Our, our customer base is predominantly financial tech companies and in particular like payment institutions.
0: Gigantic old companies, lots of money to spend, yep. good reason to spend it.
1: Yep, exactly. And so those are the groups that we talk with. And by and large, when we when we go talk to them, they need a couple different things. So traditionally, the, the team that we interface with is actually a new one. So exactly to your point. So historically, these three verticals the security, networking, and observability. Uh, have been independent and they've been handled independently across the organization right actually to the pain of the organization most of the time right how many how much do you go talk to to people in these in companies with more legacy workflows and you know I have to get around the security team to get approvals to and they're a big roadblock right and it's like oh you know I I can't tell you how many times I talk with customers and they talk about the security team with dread right because they're the mm-hmm. people that say no. And to go get a change in the networking, you know, and so if I'm a service owner, and I'm just trying to get my feature to my user, I have to go get the security team to approve my new thing. I have to go get the networking team to go make my changes. I have to go talk with the observability team to set up all this stuff, right? And so what we're seeing, and so these have historically been siloed, and arguably to the detriment of the business. And so one of the key changes that we're seeing with a lot of the people that we're interacting with is that a new team is starting to, to be created in these organizations, which is the, the platform team, if you will. So now a group has has been chartered in, in a lot of these large organizations whose purview is go make these things coherent. Go figure out, hey, that cloud thing is happening. Hey, this Kubernetes thing is happening. Hey, we have these data centers now that are, that are in VMs. We realize that we need to modernize. We realize that our competitors are investing in modernization. They're building out. They're becoming t- technology companies in some sense in payments day, right, right? Right now in, in the financial space across the board, across most of the verticals in, the, in finance, it's a race to become a, a technology company in some sense, right? And so they're realizing we need more agility. We need to be able to go faster. We need to be able to do these things. And so they're starting to build this platform team. And this tends to be a new team that is, that, that mm. is relatively recently chartered. And they're given this purview to interact across these pillars to, to start to try and f- figure out how we make a coherent platform for our developers, right? And so when I go in and talk with them, typically, so obviously, because of the market, the industry, the skew is towards security, right? And so in particular, one of the, the really interesting things is the idea of application level identity. Right. So today, when we talk about security postures and things like that, we tend to talk about network based security. Right. You know, this application sits in this subnet and we've allocated them, you know, this, you know, slash whatever it is, you know, they get these eight IP addresses. Right. And those are those nodes. And we're going to open up the physical firewall to talk to its database. Which I know is dedicated to these four IP addresses. Right. And you know, maybe it's a little bit more coarse-grained than that, but by and large, it is this, you know, we have physical firewalls connecting subnets together. And this is not amenable with a cloud world. This is not amenable with Kubernetes, where your network, where your identifier, your network address can change. So one of the one of the key features that's really interesting as we start to try and bridge these heterogeneous environments is as, as they're trying to figure out how do I run workloads in cloud and on-prem together and make them talk application level identity, having your job present a token that you can authenticate and that you can authorize against, that you trust the application, what it is, and you don't have to trust the network is critical, right. is, is, a, is a key feature for them. That's one of the, and then a knock on benefit of that, if you're gonna assign identity, the way that Istio does it in particular implies that you can do encryption in transit as well. So the, those identities that we give are, are in the form of certificates. So the, the other benefit is for a variety of regulatory requirements, uh, for regulatory reasons, you need encryption in transit, right? And so the, those two things, hey, I can get identity that gives me policy that I can write that starts to become dependent on the network and this is very new for security teams and so you know there's tip- and so part of this is having the security teams start to realize that they can start to phrase policy in better ways mm-hmm. or, in, or in ways mm-hmm. that
0: are more expressive. So let me see if i understand you correctly. So the security product that people are asking for is a way of assigning identity to applications first of all. Yeah. And I think that's uh, encompassed in the Spiffy Inspire project. Oh, totally, it is
1: too. Yeah, exactly. Also,
0: though maybe that's so. Not I right.
1: guess you'll use the Spiffy, for example, the spec. So Spiffy yeah. is the specification, Inspire yeah, the right. implementation. Is it, also implement Spiffy to do identities, for example?
0: Right. Okay. Great. So so it's basically a spec for here's how you assign an identifier to an application that can be used throughout your infrastructure yeah. for various things, such as security policy. You need to assign certificates to those applications so that they can do TLS handshakes, right? Exactly.
1: And so this is where, like, so Spire, what Spire does and what the, the the certificate rotation side of the Istio control plane does is take care of giving you those certificates that have your identities inside.
0: So that, when I talked to the, uh, the console service mesh people, yeah. basically like, you know, console they took a key value system and kind of rebranded it as a service mesh. But but basically they, they said that the reason that they did that was because when they talk to people, they like, you know, it's HashiCorp, they're super smart, they're figuring out, like, what do people actually want from a service mesh? Like, service mesh sounds like something we should do, we're like the kind of nebulous but unicorn. Yeah, they're we're in a spot they- to be able to do it, right? They have the technical chops to be able to to sell it legitimately.
1: They have, they're they one of those few companies that, that can come out with one and people would believe it.
0: Exactly, them. exactly. They have technical chops, people respect them, and, and, and yeah, so it's, it's perfect for them. But when they looked at, like, okay, there's all these things that these service meshes are doing when you yeah. go and talk to talk to the istio people mm-hmm. you go and talk to the linkerd d people they list all the, there's this like laundry list of things they do, do like load, load balancing ab testing green blue deployments red white deployments black orange deployments you know like this and that and sliced yeah. bread and and ultimately what people want is security and what does security boil down to Policy management and uh, application identity. Well, so
1: maybe one of the dirty secrets of, of networking is that networking has always been a security cell, right? I mean, like what it, VMware ar- arguably is uh, the, the big thing that they did was make software-defined networking or like uh, a mainstay for, for people, right? And how did they do it? Micro segmentation, security. Networking has always been a security cell to some degree. Now, I do want to say, though, you know, you asked what's the driving use case for my set of customers, right? Yeah. And so what we hear from them is I want all of them. But right. this is what hurts. This most. This is at the top, right? right? Okay, right. And and this is actually, I think, a pretty key point too, because like uh, adoption is very really hard. One of the keys for adoption is yes. pick one exactly hand. one pain point, right? Because basically the the delta the the increase in complexity to add a feature not that big, but the increase in complexity to start using it for the first time big. So you need something that's sufficiently painful to overcome that initial adoption pain. Once you once you've done that initial adoption, the incremental addition of features is pretty easy because all, because the
0: delta to learn is pretty small. So that platform team, let's say the platform team and an insurance company or yeah, a bank mm-hmm. that's developing, their mission is to figure out infrastructure that fits across the entire organization that they can they can sort of slot into uniformly across the uni- the organization.
1: Uh, um, to some degree so there maybe the charter is not so much uniform uniformity as figuring out how we're going to develop all new software oh, okay and then figure out how we're going to take what is legacy and okay. bring it into the new world
0: okay so they're saying for all greenfield applications we want to have some standards so that yeah. the greenfield so like applications this- are, don't have the problems of the legacy
1: yeah. stuff so like hey you're not going to deploy your greenfield into a vm like right. we're going to Kubernetes now, right. so you're going right. to deploy. Right. So new applications go there, right?
0: Right. And then for as, example. And then as they prove that out, maybe they can apply it to older applications. Exactly. Too.
1: Because there's a there's a strong desire. Right. It's not like uh, just because the, the teams run legacy land, they're not totally happy there, right? They would right. like to be able to go faster. They would like some of the features of the service mesh, for example, right? Like one of the, it's really funny to me, a lot of times we'll go in and talk with customers and one of the things we'll show is like some of the observability side. And they go, nah, we have we have we have absurdity. we have some we insert vendor name. We, we got, got an obvious. Yeah, insert no, but like insert telemetry vendor, right? Okay. Splunk, single FX, whoever. We don't need the. We're we're not really interested in that. And then you show, oh, but look, we can actually have high level metrics. And they go, whoa, I didn't know that that's even a thing that we can have. And now I can give it to my default. So it's a really exciting. It's an exciting thing.
0: Right. Okay. So they they have this platform team, and the platform team can win over the security team and have standards going forward, and the security stuff that you give them, how hard is it to create a service mesh or a platform system for deploying stuff that has those security properties, the policy management properties that they want? Is this a reality today, or is this
1: something you're working towards? So it's a reality in some environments, and we're working towards in others. And part of this is just the security teams themselves need to, to convince themselves of a new model, right? So this, this application-based identity is fundamentally a different model for, for implementing policy and, and, and security, right? And there's a whole lot of complexity in there, right? So as soon as you start issuing these identities, you run into the problems of how do I authenticate the workload? How do I know that I'm issuing the right identity to the right thing? There's there's all these knock-on problems, right? That's why CyTail exists, that's why Spire is a is a product that, you know, and, and all of that. It's a really challenging problem. And so it's a and so it's in a state of flux, right? And so security teams would be negligent if they dropped their existing security policy and went whole hog into this new thing, right? That like what regulator that would be crazy to do from like a regulatory standpoint, for example, because this is a new uncharted world where but an auditor knows the controls for for traditional network security. So the reality is that today it's it starts to be a mix, right? And a lot of the things that we wind up discussing with with a lot of these is how do we do things like in the new world, we use application identity with with from Spiffy in, in some form with this EO or Spire or something like that. But when I go talk back to legacy land, we need to do a swap of identity so that I can I can integrate in with the legacy view of the security mm-hmm. model, right? So that's one of the transitory states it, that people is it, send. Is it like a
0: translation layer or like something additional?
1: It depends on the – that's one of those things that winds up being pretty, like, organization-specific because, uh, you know, your network is one of those things that's always always a special snowflake, right? And so, like, I've seen a bunch of different things from, from different users that take – you know, Some of them, it's simple things like VPNs or natting and, and stuff like that. Some of them, it's it's more sophisticated. We're going to go in through ingresses and we're going to do real often. We're going to, real in quotes, but we're going to do as if we it's an end user. You know, we're going to treat them as end user clients calling in and the whole spectrum between, right? So there, I, I guess your original question though was, how real is it today? Yeah. Yeah. So these policies exist today. You can author them. It's fine. We'll, we enforce them at runtime. That's great. And really the hurdle becomes getting the security team to buy into an updated model.
0: Cox Automotive is the technology company behind Kelly Blue Book, autotrader.com, and many other car sales and information platforms. Cox Automotive transforms the way that the world buys, sells, and owns cars. They have the data and the user base to understand the future of car purchasing and ownership. Cox Automotive is looking for software engineers, data engineers, scrum masters, and a variety of other positions to help push the technology forward. If you want to innovate in the world of car buying, selling, and ownership, check out coxautotech.com, that's C-O-X-A-U-T-O-T-E-C-H.com, to find out more about career opportunities and what it's like working at Cox Automotive. Cox Automotive isn't a car company. They are a technology company that's transforming the automotive industry. Thanks to Cox Automotive. And if you want to support the show and check out the job opportunities at Cox Automotive, go to coxautotech.com. the platform solution that you're selling these people or advising them on or consulting with them on are they using kubernetes and istio and like yeah. sidecar containers
1: yeah yeah typically uh so most of these these platform teams that we talk to want to use kubernetes for the the new platform right the greenfield uh, application. yeah the greenfield and and most of, and all the ones that we have already have a uh, substantial workloads in kubernetes right so because it, it was greenfield Two or three years ago, right? And so they already have a pretty big split footprint between those two. So I'm sorry, what was the first part of your question?
0: (laughs) Well, no, 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 that that answered it. I mean, I was basically kind of hinting back at the the beginning of the conversation, like, you know, have these old legacy enterprises that have tons and tons of infrastructure and tons and tons of greenfield mileage ahead of them. Yeah. Yeah are they going into quote-unquote microservices? It sounds like they they are. are. Yeah, for sure. And it's a reality. So, those
1: companies are exactly the ones that need the organizational... So, those companies have historically been the ones that are pretty ossified, right? That are are hard to change, right? And so, again, they see that it's an existential problem for them. They have to become nimbler. They have to become technology companies in some sense, right? And, you know, companies like Square and Stripe are phenomenal examples that put the fear into the... And they look at... You know, so... Payment processing companies on the East Coast look over at at those and they go, I need to get, uh, you know, that's what I'm playing against. And so they look at it from a holistic perspective. I need to skill up my developers. Part of it's just even the hiring side of it, right? To some degree, if I really want some of the best people, I need to be using some of the cool technology because the best people want to do that, right? It's a hiring tool. It's a combination, right? It's this holistic I you know from the perspective of my company I need to make this transition and there's many different pieces that belong to that right and this actually addresses like this move to the this adoption of of cloud native technology this move to kubernetes this these things enable that transition that that strategic goal across a bunch of different dimensions right so, so hiring how's... culture
0: uh, absolutely I think I get it at this point I mean you're making a very strong case for the idea that microservices is something that you go for for because of organizational reasons and then it creates technical difficulties, but the technical difficulties are worth overcoming because you will get a stronger organization out of it and exactly. ultimately better technology out of yeah, it because exactly. of a better organization. Exactly. Very specific question. Let's say a company adopted Kubernetes three years ago the footprint has been growing since then like some enterprising set of engineers got kubernetes off the ground and they started they started saying like look our pl- here's our platform plan we got this platform plan for kubernetes and and everybody throughout the organization going forward has implemented uh, new applications using kubernetes using containers let's say 3 years into this th- this company starts to say we want to start having a sidecar proxy. We want to yeah. start having Envoy sidecar proxy, and then eventually we want to have Istio. Uh, so we want to have we want to have Istio in addition to the Envoy sidecars that are going to be proxying all the traffic between totally. each other. How hard is it to deploy sidecar containers throughout that kind of organization?
1: Yeah. So this is actually one of the, kind of the key pain points of Istio, right? It's one of these things that we never that we still have not really addressed fully. Right. And which is the the day zero is still kind of tough. Day zero of Envoy. Of Istio in particular. So Envoy too. So, and just to be clear for, for listeners, right? So Envoy is a component in Istio. So Envoy itself, open source project, very successful, is used by a bunch of different service mesh implementations, is used by a bunch of people building their own bespoke mesh, in quotes, because the degree to which it's a mesh or not depends on their organization. But a lot of people are using this as a proxy independently. Istio... Basically provides the batteries to to program Envoys, right? And so the your original question
0: was was how is hard, the, how, hard how hard is it? Is it? Yeah. yeah, specifically so, I was specifically thinking about the Envoy deployment process. But I, yeah, guess, I guess I guess most of the people who are deploying Envoy, it's in service of Istio.
1: Yeah, well, and a lot of them are deploying it themselves. In, in, so like the depending on your like if you're in Kubernetes, like you said, for example, that's pretty easy, right? Because the primitives are already in place to be able to do that in the platform, right? To just throw so in the I S- just put the container. Right, I put the container in my pod spec, right? Hey, it turns out the pod spec can have many containers. You just put a second one, right? That's the mechanics. The challenge becomes, is the semantics right? Have I programmed Istio to be able to work with my service correctly and not break it? And that's the pain point, right? Today... With with Istio, so there uh, one the maybe the most classic historic example has been port naming. I want my I would like to be able to proxy HTTP traffic in my application. Turns out that if you want to do that in Istio, historically we have always required that you na- explicitly name your Kubernetes port HTTP dash something. Don't care what it is, uh, but we use that as a signal. And so one of the classic pain points was hey I wanted to try Istio. I went ahead and just deployed the sidecar on all my services and none of the traffic works. And we go, oh, did you label all the ports? No. I didn't know I need to. Right. And so there's these tripping, there's these these tripping hazards, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the one of the most acute pain points for the project for, for the past two years or so has been these these day zero, day one pain points around how do we actually enable adoption. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's unfortunately it's taken quite a lot of time to to get there. But especially in from 1.4, which just came out last week, uh, Istio 1.4, and and then some of the in 1.5 should have even more changes that start to alleviate a lot of these introductory problems, a lot of these like stumbling blocks that, that you would typically hit on on these initial adoption journeys, right? Uh, but it, it turns out it is quite a bit of work to, to adopt this, right? And so again, we I think I said earlier, the most successful adopters I see pick exactly one pain point the most successful adopters i see additionally start gradually right you don't just turn it on everywhere you pick your your victim or your volunteer <laughs> carefully first sure. right and and you do this gradually this is how but this is really how any large change Certainly. in any organization Absolutely. happens right and so the it's the not really it's not novel right the
0: example i always remember is you know the classic netflix migration to microservices which began with the jobs board, the, yep. the Netflix jobs board. That was, the, you know, Netflix had a monolithic architecture and uh, the first thing that they moved, oh no, I'm sorry, this is Netflix moving to the cloud. The, yeah. But it, it, boy, it's true. Same idea, it, yeah. Same idea, This because the same idea is any big technological shift, you start with something that has low service area exactly. and low risk to the organization. Exactly. If your jobs board goes down, it doesn't matter. Exactly. You know, if you want to deploy a service mesh, you probably start with the jobs Job board, also. board also. exactly. Like, who cares? Exactly. You get the jobs board up and running, you get the, you know, whatever. Test the test the number of jobs board instances you can set up. Are they all observable through Istio? Can you change their security policy? Exactly. Oops, we made a mistake. The jobs board's offline for five minutes. Nobody noticed. Precisely. So
1: Yeah, yeah. and then you roll it out incrementally from there, right? And that's right. and so yeah, that is what we have seen as
0: is far and away the, the the best way to adapt. So when Istio came out, like I guess two or three years ago. When was the big, the big? Yeah, uh pull- twenty seventeen Glucon in March of twenty seventeen. Okay, tw- March of twenty seventeen, and then I th- was it the CubeCon that summer where they really made their big launch at. Yeah, CubeCon. that was
1: yeah that KubeCon US where there it felt like IstioCon almost. IstioCon, yeah, right. that was maybe the peak. I was actually just talking with some people about that exact event maybe thirty minutes ago. Maybe the peak difference between
0: hype and Istio the yes. project
1: versus where the capabilities of the project actually were. It was so
0: hilarious because this is painful. It was so bad. It must have been really painful for you because yeah. something went what went wrong? It was something went wrong with the marketing function. It was exactly. Like, it was like somebody in Google marketing got too much budget for Istio or or like maybe it was the IBM marketing folks actually. Exactly. Yeah, it just took off,
1: right? It like it for yeah, for whatever reason what you know, for at that particular event there were quite a few contributing factors contemporary you know, at that time that led into this, into it, you know, being kind of the B star coupon that year almost, right? And yeah, I think actually that was probably the most detrimental thing it was that really could have bad. happened it to was- the project
0: period it was a total banana peel. i
1: i there's a a company that i uh talk to pretty regularly these days to try and help out with with some of their envoy adoption in particular you know and i and i you know say hey y'all should you know if y'all are using envoy y'all should really look at istio you know as yeah, and course. they're like we've been reading twitter and well no they no even worse they said oh well we already tried it back at zero oh, three i'm never touching that again oh, right. right and so it's like but no that was you know that was three months into to the life cycle of a project you know Zero 03 you right. know Istio is 6 months old then. It's you know 3 years old now almost. Actually uh it'll be 3 years in uh 2 weeks I think in December. So
0: just real real quick to tell the story for people who don't know. Just basically Istio was given a ton of fanfare, a ton of promotion at this KubeCon and this was when it was at whatever, zero. I mean it was like zero three I think zero, actually. Zero three. Yeah, it it did super early It was days. Really, really hard to deploy and this was being advertised as the infrastructure solution of the future. It's the next Kubernetes. Was, oh right? man, it's this like is definitely business. this is the thing, definitely the thing you want doing your TLS handshakes and all your other security management and your traffic routing and everything and people are like, I, I can't install this.
1: Yeah, they got so excited, right? Because they were like oh, the, you know, and you go to the talk and you hear the laundry list of features, the pages and pages, and you go, I need exactly that. Like, I need exactly the observability. I need, you know, like as a developer, you sit there and you identify with it deeply. And you go try and use it and
0: you burn yourself, right? The other thing that made it look really bad was that the conference was pretty Promoting Istio so much, and Linkerd was over there in the shadows. Yeah, and Linkerd was like, people actually use this in production. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I know. I have so much respect for William, right? Like, because he, uh, the whole he has done a phenomenal job with with Linkerd and with Boyant. I I have, especially now that I've left Google, I have so much more respect doing the doing the startup game. Right? It's hard. Right, and so I I have a lot of admiration for him having to navigate that. Right, he he was saddled with (laughs) this big gorilla that came in on. And again, and again, the hype really, bit, you know, was painful for him too. Even though they had a product that worked, Istio because Istio became because of the marketing function there, because Istio became synonymous with service mesh in so many people's minds and failure and failure, and hard to <laughs> it use. Actually, that ended up being really, really good. He paid well. Yeah, exactly. So in the the, long yeah, run. yeah, but yeah, but in the short term, there, you know, he he was up against it trying to tell, no, it's Istio that's <laughs> hard to use, not. And so I have a, I have immense respect for him, and that was exactly some of the kind of. Subtext there in that in that KubeCon, right? As people were looking around, going, "Well, why are they talking about Istio when when Linkerd is the is the
0: one?" So, but at the same time, it was easy to tell that this thing was going to work out. Like even back then, it was like, "Well, okay, we all know Envoy works really well, yeah, and we all know that people want this service mesh stuff yeah. at this at some point." People, this is very
1: well. Of course, we were in the heady highs of Kubernetes just winning the orchestrator wars. Right. Right. And so now Google has the next thing.
0: What was it like being a, so you were at Google during the container orchestration wars?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. But I, I wasn't really working in that side of the house as much. I was in GCP doing enterprisey things there. OK,
0: well, what was it like seeing that? war even for oh, I, I, I mean I,
1: I mean i got my popcorn and watch because i didn't have a hey, horse in yes. the race then right? uh, so I, I enjoyed it, it i thought it was so pretty cool. cool yeah you know i enjoyed talking you know looking at it just as a as a software engineer you know i'm fortunate that i'm i live in in san francisco and so i have some you know i have good friends there that, that are sres at a bunch a bunch of different places and so i got to i got to hear some pretty first-hand accounts of the of the war right and so i you know for me it was always really entertaining to see Did you go to conferences
0: during that time? No, I didn't go to conferences. Oh man, it was hilarious! hilarious. Oh, I'm sure. The the funniest part was like walking around the expo hall and just seeing. The the deep confusion, just like you talk to Mesosphere, they kind tell like you service everything. mesh today. Co- well, <laughs> actually, not really like service mesh today. T- today, it's like pretty well defined. It's like you've got Linkerd over here, guess, you've got yeah, Istio over true. here, you have got a million Istio providers, and you've got one Linkerd. Pro- well, I guess you no, well, but there's millions. like
1: there's mesh and, and mesh dry right, traffics. Uh, oh yeah, the, the new thing and, 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 and then the Kuma Kong, and there the yeah. yeah. So there's like more there's more entries coming into the field for sure. So I think it'll be interesting to see if if there is confusion or not. I think you're largely right. So I think, in particular, the fact that Google is behind it, coming out of Kubernetes, in particular, in that timing there with the project, did a whole lot with respect to exactly what you just said, which is the general perception that Istio was going to be the one. And the other side of it is just look at the money behind it, right? right. It's Google, IBM. That you know, like the who else is going to come along and fund the thing? Like the only other players in the space that that would. Legitimately be able to fund competition. There are going to be the other cloud providers, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, the other difference between the service mesh wars and the container orchestration wars is container orchestration wars. It felt felt like for as long as there was a container orchestration war, none of the banks and financial companies wanted to move. They w- didn't want to move. They're like, no, we're not going to invest in Mesosphere. We tr- we did this with OpenStack. Like yep. we made exactly. this mistake with OpenStack. Yep. And
1: so, a, again, I, in the same way that I think some of the halo of Kubernetes extended to, to Istio with respect to people perceiving that it will be the, the winner, the same thing happened with decision maker. At least my perception is the same thing happened with decision makers looking at the mesh, right? They said, hmm. right, because a lot of them are these literally, because a, a lot of these people are the Kubernetes team now, right? And so they, they looked at and they said, well, that's what I bet on.
0: And now I've got my job here.
1: Right. So I think that, yeah, that halo effect again from of Kubernetes okay. on to and, But people are uh, not
0: gunshy. They people are not deliberating between different No, not in my point.
1: experience, right? So certainly people have looked at different ones, but but by and large I, and I again part of the part of this is just bias. If you're if you're going to come talk to Tetrate and and to me,
0: you're probably going to ask us about Istio. Uh, so talking, certainly well, there's some I've, bias there. I'm talking to William later this week. Good. Yeah. And I am going to ask him like how are you going to compete with the kubernetes community that seems like they're all in on istio and if they're not all in on istio google will spend money until they are yeah like Uh, how are you going to compete with that
1: yeah i yeah i think it's so this is one of my my favorite war games right because i happen to i happen to be intimately familiar with this space and so i and now being at a startup i i have kind of an appreciation there i think it's a really fascinating question right i am very excited to see what they decide to do and, and what tactics and strategies mm-hmm. they decide to, to use there. I actually think that there are quite a few different avenues that they could take that, like that would be very successful. In my opinion, looking at it, I think that, and, you, know, I, you know, I don't have super insight into their business, but I look at it and go, there are two clear ways that, that you can win uh, right now. One of them is talk about usability. <laughs> talk about usability from dawn till dusk, right? Like just usability, usability, usability. And then the second thing I think—wait, meaning that Liquidity is more usable than Istio, right. exactly. Okay, exactly. Use my thing is usable. You can get it deployed, right? And that's pretty fair. They have they have put a lot of effort into solving those problems, right? That is one of the bigger indications, I think, of maturity in a project, right? Yeah. So production totally. readiness oh, and maturity totally. are very different things. Totally. People may not understand this, but. Building software that is usable is really hard. Exactly right, and so and they've been doing it for you know for years longer than right. So they you know because and you know a lot of the core of Linkerd's original functionality came out of an angle right, and so they and so like a lot of it had been vetted and yes, iterated on many times. Anyway, so usability, I think, and then I think that there's still a lot of room actually to target verticals, especially in Kubernetes. Hmm. And I think that you're going to see a proliferation of, of vendors that are starting to target verticals and that are starting to that will start to tailor. Offerings towards specific like into, HIPA, sets of industries, HIPAA
0: compliance or something.
1: Yeah, that that maybe is one. I think maybe the ML stuff is pretty interesting, right? So the TensorFlow and the and the uh. machine, you know, so that's a perfect example of a project that is doing that's doing a vertical, right? We have machine language and model serving on Kubernetes,
0: right? The Kube, that's Kubeflow. Uh, stuff. Yeah,
1: Kubeflow. Exactly. Sorry, the the name scares me there. So Kubeflow is a perfect example of a vertical product on on a platform, right? We built this product around shipping machine learning I think that there is a lot of room to do that style product using a mesh mm-hmm. right uh, and I think that that's a and that's a place that I you know I uh, will use my educated opinion here and say I don't think that the cloud providers are particularly gonna or they're gonna move into those spaces last right they're gonna they're gonna take their time going into the verticals. those. yeah
0: well they got so much other stuff to work on
1: exactly so from my outside view of of Point. I would love to see them do that. I think that that would be a, a way that they could be really successful. Uh, they even just announced a product today. Actually, that I went didn't live. see.
0: I didn't see what went live yet.
1: Yeah, so I, I don't remember what the link is offhand. But uh, we can, what is you it? can put it in the show notes. What does it do? But they're doing a, basically management over top of a mesh. So some visibility, some process, that kind of stuff. Okay. Right. And so that's a, And so that's a whole. I think that's actually really where. We need a lot of tooling built out, right? So this is that's right in the vein of what Tetrate itself is doing, right? So we're doing we're really focusing on the the management side. We talked about mesh is really a people problem, right? It's not a technology problem. And so, so management is really management planes and, and the management of, of this infrastructure is really where the, the technology side meets the people side.
0: Okay. So this is the idea that whatever service mesh you're doing, you're using from a performance perspective, from a deployment perspective, Linkerd deal figured out, Istio figured out. This stuff will get figured out. Where the real battle is going to take place is the developer experience at the control exactly, plane, right? And and how
1: can you actually make that tractable, right? Because again, like we said, you know, no business. My customers don't care about the fact that I moved from monolith to, from monolith to a bunch of microservices. Yeah, my customers care about the fact that they get to see features faster. And the way that I do that is I make it easier for my developers to build and deploy software that my users
0: can touch, right? So the we know that developer experience matters a lot, but... Uh, we, you know, you look at AWS and the developer experience is—I mean, th- so I think Google Cloud the developer experience is significantly better than the AWS developer yeah. experience. But, but like, of course, AWS has just more traction, more footprint, and it's it's more well developed. Maybe it's more sturdy. AWS does a
1: phenomenal job of meeting customers where they're at and right. giving them things that are familiar to them already. It is a lot easier to be a network admin with my all my Cisco certifications. And go do my same job in AWS because I still need to configure VPCs because we still need to do some of those things. Than it is to come to Google where Google says no, it's good. The the network's flat. Like you don't need those things. Like we, we do it different <laughs> way, right? And so this uh, is actually I think some of the fundamental uh, tension, right? This is a it's a fundamental strategy choice between those two cloud providers, right? That we talked earlier. Amazon is fundamentally customer focused. That manifests as not really being the player that's driving forward the the bleeding edge, right? Mm-hmm. Amazon is not known for their right. bleeding edge innovation, right, right. but what they do do better than any other company in the entire world is commoditize software, right. right? They They take software that has been proven, that has been built out, and they bring it to the masses mm-hmm. better than any other company in the entire world, I think right? Google does a fundamentally different strategy, right? They, they say we want the... And, and it's because they have a fundamentally different view, because their customer is the internal engineer, first and foremost, and not the external customer. So they don't care about meeting an external network admin where they're at, and at the knowledge that they have today, because that's not the knowledge that they have, and that's not what their customer needs. And so... You wind up part of where this manifests is in the UX and in the in the set of primitives that you deal with in the platform. Yeah,
0: right? uh, Google Cloud UX is great.
1: In yeah, my, in my experience. Yeah, me too. So now you know I, I'm no longer work for GCP, and I've had to be a client of both, and I can say for sure I, I much prefer the the primitives in GCP. Right? It blew my mind that AWS. I couldn't. I and didn't have UI. one console. It, well, I didn't have one console to see all my stuff. Right. Why is the console scope to a region? What? And so there's just like, there, there were a bunch of things I look at and I go, wow, that's kind of weird. And no, so I, I think this difference in, in approach and strategy is pretty fundamental. And I actually think that you can look at, uh, and there's some interesting parallels there, bringing us back to service mesh discussion between like Linkerd strategy versus Istio strategy, mm-hmm. for example, right? Uh, Istio is very much a manifestation of how Google likes to do engineering. Mm-hmm right? It's complicated, but it's really powerful. <laughs> There's a lot of sharp edges to right. cut yourself with, right? right. Linkerd is, uh, is much easier to use, right? But uh, maybe it doesn't scratch all the itches that you need. Maybe it doesn't cover all the cases. It's less featureful in, in some capacities, right? And, so, uh, and you know, it certainly is not going to do things outside of Kubernetes for you, for example. Where you know Envoy was built to run on EC2 originally, right? Lyft Lyft uh, right. ran Envoy's original right. The original incarta- incarnation of Envoy is as Edge Ingress Proxy on EC2 VMs for to handle Lyft traffic. Oh, right? so
0: that's right. So like, if I have some Pivotal Cloud Foundry installation that's all on VMs, I could adopt Istio. I could have Envoy proxies on my.
1: Yeah, so if we're doing like PCF, there's maybe some some extra caveats there just okay. because of
0: the 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 environment
1: that, that Cloud Foundry sets up. But like Cloud Foundry actually is an interesting example because they've been uh, early Istio contributors from the beginning, uh, specifically with an eye towards using Istio in the implementation of Cloud Foundry to 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 do some of the routing and, and networking things that, that end users see.
0: Mm. Okay, well, we don't have to go down that yes. rabbit hole. So it, it, when you were at Google Cloud, you were straight-up engineer, right? You, mm-hmm. were, yeah, it, yeah. It seems like you've really enjoyed the shift towards more of a go-to-market kind of strategist and yeah, sale, a, sales engineer. You, I mean, you have to wear a lot of hats. For yeah, that. a small company, you wear a lot of hats, right? I,
1: I still, you know, what definitely what makes me happiest is sitting down and, and getting to do some hard design and and ideally writing some code. But yeah, I, I enjoy the the other aspects of it, right? I enjoy getting up and, and talking with customers and talking with users and hearing about the problems that people have. I enjoy some of this talking like we're doing now. You <laughs> know, it's always kind of fun, right? Uh, it's a, it's an interesting and different thing, right? Yeah, you know, it's a small company. You wear a bunch of hats. That's the that's just kind of how it goes.
0: What's the hardest part of building an infrastructure company?
1: I mean, I can I can speak for us. I think so. We we made some pretty interesting decisions with, with respect to how we build Tetrate company, the company, right? Uh, and I'm I'm sure you've talked a little bit about this with Varun in, in past episodes. But this is typically how I, how I talk about it, right? When we talk about tech startups, every company needs to take risks, right? A startup, the whole premise of a startup is that you take a risk. That's how you make money. Most technology startups, the risk that they take is is the technology that they're picking, right? I feel like we're pretty secure there. <laughs> I don't feel like it's very risky. Now obviously that you know it's a little self-serving. Uh, but you know, I look at Envoy, I think it's pretty rock solid, right? I look at Istio and, and I'm pretty happy with, with where yeah. we're you know, there's there's things that need to be fixed, but from the perspective of I need to enable large scale enterprise customers to use this stuff, Istio's in in not a bad spot today, right? So I, you know, I feel good about our technology picks. I think the real risky pick that we have as a a company, and so the the hardest thing for us with respect to this build out and this thing uh, is the fact that we're totally remote. And so we're globally distributed, right? So I have 27 people in 11 countries and and, uh, 10 different time zones, right? Okay. So maybe not quite the answer you were looking for with respect to infrastructure companies. Tell me more. But, you know, that's a fundamentally different thing. I actually firmly believe that that will be how basically all companies work in the future. It, It really is awesome. For sure. But oh, man. You it's so hard because so much of, of human interaction. Is, is predicated on body language and, and just being in the same right. We're, we're recording this podcast in the same room together because a podcast recorded where we can look at each other while we talk is way better than one where we're recording it over a phone. Or, or, and not just because the recording equipment is better, but because the whole conversation is better because we can see each other, because we can interact with each other in a, in a more tangible way. Yeah. And humans are just built to do that, right? And so one of the, the key challenges for a totally remote company then is how do you start to enable that? How do you how do you enable intentional interaction between people? There's no water cooler to go chat about the weekend, right? Because because you're in India and I'm here, and so if we want to chat, if we just kind of want to shoot the about about you know our, our lives, we have to intentionally take time to do that, right? And so and that manifests in a bunch of different ways, right? So just in general, communication has to be incredibly intentional, and and that's a hard and and different challenge, I think, than than many other companies, right? And so then on top of that, there's just the engineering side, you know, there's plenty of other things that are hard about an infrastructure company, right? The, the engineering part is, is challenging. The problem space itself tends to be a little bit deeper and, and more technical than than many other uh, problem spaces, right? So there's all these knock on things, but at least from, you know, that, that any infrastructure company has to deal with, but at least from our perspective, the thing that makes it hardest, but is also, and I think maybe one of our single biggest benefits as a company, full stop, is that that we're totally remote.
0: If your product has dashboards and reports, you know the importance of making those analytics products beautiful. Logi Analytics gives you embedded analytics and rich visualizations. You don't need to be a designer to get great analytics in your product. According to the Gartner analyst firm, the look and feel of embedded analytics has a direct impact on how end users perceive your application. go to logianalytics.com/se-daily to access 17 easy changes that will transform your dashboards. That's l o g i analytics.com/se-daily. Logi Analytics is a leading development platform for embedded dashboards and reports. And Logi gives you complete control to create your own analytics experience. Logi Analytics has been a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily for a while, and we're very happy to have them. So thanks to Logi Analytics, and go to logianalytics.com sedaily, to find 17 easy changes that will transform your dashboards. You can get better dashboards and reports inside your product with embedded analytics from Logi Analytics. What do you think is going to happen to to all of Google's napping pods and lunch buffets (laughs) and, like... Bouncy castles yeah. and like you know buildings all over the world. As people realize, all of these perks don't add up to the level of happiness I get from well, sitting like, at home exactly. in, yeah. in front of my so, own computer.
1: Yeah, so I can actually speak to this in a very real way because I had all those and now I you now I sit at home uh, and I joked with people and but I wasn't really joking. The thing that I miss the most is the the food, man. Really, really good <laughs> food. And so there's definitely. Pluses and minuses to both, right? I, I think that uh, it's not really for everyone to sit at home and work at home all day. I think a lot of people have a hard time doing that. We we've certainly had, had some people that have had a hard time doing the transition to totally remote. Like in general, we, we hire only open source developers or primarily open source developers because they're used to working remotely, right? Uh, it can be a tough change to navigate, right? But I do think that the freedom is massive, right? I love that I can go, you know, if I don't have a meeting in the middle of the day, it's super easy for me to go see a movie. And I have an, empty, you know, I have a theater to myself, <laughs> right? Or more, more likely, oh, that's I, a funny uh, image. Yeah, but I'm a big biker, right? So I love biking around San Francisco, right? And so I'll go do a ton of. Uh, that's my favorite midday is bi- bike ride. Right? I, do,
0: I do this. I go for a run yeah, in the middle of the day. It's, exactly, it, it, the it, it's, quality of life.
1: It's so much better. Exactly. So I think that there will. I think that the steady state that we're going to land in is that there's going to be a mix, yeah. right? Of and we have some office space because some days you just got to get up house right? Some people don't work effectively from home, so you need a space. I think it definitely does devalue some of those perks, for sure, right? But the other side of that is the number of companies that offer those crazy perks like that is basically like five, right? there's It's the FANG companies, right? So there's not outside of that pool it's not i don't know man san
0: francisco like
1: sure so but like most startups aren't doing like the right it's like google is like all three meals a day for free right it's like egregiously over the top right uh certainly there are it definitely does devalue it some one of the interesting perks that you can have as a company uh so one of the as a company one of the biggest expenses that you have especially if you're in san francisco for example is your office space yeah right uh we don't spend money on office space totally uh, so, it makes it much more feasible to start to to do things to address some of those perks if we want to, right? So, we haven't really needed to yet. Right, right, right. But, like, we can still easily do that and our and our costs are still substantially lower than yeah. if we were all in person just because we're not paying for, for the privilege of having a space, having a door that we can lock, right? That we can share.
0: Now, much of what Google got out of that in-person feeling. And I, I worked at Amazon for a while. And a bunch of what Amazon gets out of this in-person stuff is this cultural cohesion.
1: Yeah, that, that's a big part of it for sure. Yeah.
0: Like like the spreading of values mm-hmm. and, and some values which I'm not sure could permeate and exist as strongly in a remote culture.
1: Yeah, and that's definitely part of the challenge is how do you successfully so like culture what is company culture other than the some of the interactions that you have together right uh and so when those are disparate and you don't have the perk of being in the same office together is that we get to see many of those other interactions that don't involve us and that is what informs our own how we act Mm -hmm. right because that is the norm that is what is accepted in this space Mm -hmm. and so yeah that's another place where again uh, you have to be very intentional as a remote company, you have to intentionality is a, is a really, really critical concept, I think, just across the board, you have to have intentional communication. And part of that intentional communication is consciously enforcing the values in interactions constantly, like, you have to do these things more and, and more cognitively, they have to be more in the front of your mind than in a traditional environment, because you have to take those rare opportunities to to drive home that this is how we do it. And then the other side of it is just communicating more, right? So part of it is, you know, writing down our norms and expectations. Right? And that's a good thing for a company anyway to yeah. to have to to start to as long as those are living documents that can breathe and change with as as the company grows, that's a good thing. And so we we have a mix, right? So it's a it's a mix of document more, make available communications more with each other, make the, you know, and, and be intentional about how we set culture, right? And that even manifest. I mean, like, and I, I think about this, right, because I'm, you know, when I get to, because I was one of the first engineers, I'm in more of a leadership position. And and so I think about this constantly with respect to how I present myself in meeting. Any leader does to some degree, right? You have to. But again, with a remote, you have to be even more cognizant of it. You have to be even more in my you have to be mindful right the intentional intentionality mindfulness however you want to say it that I think really does boil down to being one of the critical features and that's challenging on a team right that we are not <laughs> humans or tend to be pretty selfish by nature we don't we don't tend to be pretty we don't tend to be very good at, at mindfulness in that in that and so it has to be a, a practice right yeah totally uh, yeah, well, and, and do- I would argue maybe that the set of values that you have to have in a remote company maybe you manif- wind up being a little different than the set of values that you have in a, in a in-person company, specifically because of things like that, right? I, mindfulness and intentionality is, is a very important value that does not tend to appear in, in
0: many traditional companies' sets of values, right? A lot of stuff we could continue to explore there. I, I just want to wrap up. Long-ranging question. How do GCP, AWS, and Azure in The Limit mm-hmm. strategically differ from one another?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting. So we, t- we talked about this a little bit, right? So Amazon continues to do what what they do best, which is we are going to listen to what our customers say. And when a sufficient number of them say that they want this button, we're going to add the button. And they're, I think they're going to continue with that march, right? I, I don't really, unless some organizationally scarring event happens there, or there's some large change in, in leadership, I, I don't think that that would change. And from their position, why would it? They're, they're the dominant player right now, right? Like we talked about before, Google is fundamentally a technology-oriented company, right? If, if Amazon is fundamentally a customer-oriented technolo- company, Google is fundamentally a technology-oriented company, right? And so they're going to continue to have really awesome tech, right? I would argue that App Engine today is probably still ahead of its time. And App Engine was released in 2008. <laughs> right. Right. And obviously, it's changed in that, yeah, in that yeah. intervening 11 years. Yeah. But, you know, it was a decade. Of, like It's arguably five, it, you it, know, it's many it, years it, ahead of time hilarious. and it's a decade old.
0: It's hilarious how characteristic that is of Google Cloud's presence in the market. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And so it's like,
0: this is the future. Exactly. Google Cloud is the future. It's so, And it's additionally if funny when you, you see. You can
1: walk customers there. Because, again, that's there, the right. thing is that Amazon meets them where they're at. And so it's comfy. Google doesn't. right? And that is the, fu- if Google can figure out how to bridge that gap and they're trying with some of the, they're trying to do that from an organizational perspective with uh, like Thomas Kieran, right? And with the, the growth of the sales side. Well, of,
0: Firebase, I thought was an interesting example. Yeah, people, Firebase is a good pe- example of people that. People love Firebase mm-hmm. and Firebase is a new, it feels like a newish technology. It feels like, like totally a fresh right. technology, but it's exactly what the hipster developers want.
1: Yes. And so, but critically it's an acquisition right so that's not and so google took that technology and they've built it and they've made it better and they've made it cool and, and they have I'm, these like,
0: cross sells into the google ecosystem exactly. from firebase totally exactly so maybe they'll do the same with looker and yeah whatever. and like I
1: yeah you can probably rest assured that that will continue to be the strategy right yeah. they they want that interdependence it's kind of things, interesting right? strategy it's a natural and that's a yeah and so they're they're going to continue to run that down right and i think that they will continue to get more traction there's one you know and there's and there's a lot of small things that manifest there one of the the really nice things about using google apis is that they tend to be pretty consistent i know somebody did analysis of like the aws apis and in and, and particular they were looking <laughs> all at all million of them <laughs> exactly exactly and they were looking now to be fair google has hundreds of i was on the api survey i was on the api team there so <laughs> sure. google has oh, hundreds yeah, of apis yeah. too right, right they're public probably. too and uh many less than AWS, obviously but you know somebody did analysis of the aws next page token and how do you pa- how do you paginate through list APIs in AWS, right? Oh. And there's a table, and it's like the capitalization is different. How many of them have a different field between the return and the next one? Oh. So it's not next page token into page token, or so you know, it's like this mismatch, right? So Google APIs don't have that.
0: They're consistent.
1: They're consistent. The reason they're consistent is because there's an internal process in place to do these reviews that that mandates that consistency.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is a phenomenal feature that nobody really talks about, but that usability goes through. And so, I think that in the long run, what will happen as, is that as developers where they're at moves closer to the things that Google is shipping, right. it'll it'll start to make more sense, and they'll start to get more traction. Right? Uh, of course, we're also very very early into the cloud race. Right? Totally, yeah. we're, we're we're not ten percent in yet. Right. So I think I think that will work out well for Google continuing forward, right? And then of course there's Azure, and what does Azure do? They know enterprise sales, yes, more than any other yes. thing, right? Yeah. I haven't used their cloud. I was about to say had to use their cloud. Right. That's not quite uh, the right <laughs> connotation. <laughs> um, but you know, they more than e- either of the other two, they understand the enterprise sales motion, and they already have their foot in place in. And particularly in the middle of the country.
0: Okay, right, the middle of the country. <laughs> that's that's the key, and probably in a lot of like international places too. Yeah. where That. But there. But like, there are
1: so many people that will never touch Amazon, but Microsoft. They're already using Microsoft, and so they're already like the. They're already in the door.
0: They'll never touch Amazon because well, for a
1: bunch of different right. So like maybe they think they're you know maybe they think they're in a competing competing. Oh industry. yeah, that like, one. That right, side right, right, of it. right, right. Or you know for whatever reason. Oh, hilarious! Uh, right, right, right. No, I think there's Wal- a variety I think, of reasons. I think so.
0: Walmart has like a deep partnership with with uh, Azure for that very yeah,
1: reason. Yeah. So Walmart was the the fam- the most famous instance of this because because they tried to make oh, their vendors not do it right. So no, I think that Microsoft will continue to run down the, that enterprise sales side. They are very good at that. And I think that concurrently, they will continue to bulk up their operational side and and build out, right? And so they are it's kind of funny because Microsoft, in some ways, I worked in a .NET shop for years, right? In another life, I would have loved to have gone to Cambridge, gotten a, a PhD in type theory, and then gone and worked for Microsoft Research. Right, right. right? Go right? hang out with and, Anders Halesberg. Yeah, exactly, right. And so, these Anders was one of my heroes, right, yeah. you know, as, a, as a younger sure. engineer, yeah. reading about. And, and so, in so many different ways, Microsoft does really cutting-edge technologies and really visionary things and in a lot of ways they they do Microsoft office <laughs> and outlook and these institutional things that have the weight of an institutional enterprise thing and they're not oh, yeah. new and fast and but they they get the job done so i think their challenge is going to be how do we kind of bridge these two worlds together right cuz that's where i think they get the the really right. compelling right. things that neither google nor AWS will do, and so their challenge is gonna be, so they have the the sales motion, right? Like if I were gonna build the dream cloud, I would take the enterprise, Side of Microsoft, and I would combine it with the technology side of Google, and, and we would go conquer the world, right?
0: But, uh, <laughs> what, what about AWS? What I was, in it, you're just like <laughs> no, throw it out, throw it all no, they're out. Phenomenal, but another? But
1: it's not the. I don't think the fundamentally. Can use, uh, use
0: AWS Lambda to stitch
1: your two yes, sides together. Yes. <laughs> well, like I don't, you know, and I don't mean to, to disparage AWS or anything, but there, you know, if there's if there's realists and idealists on the engineering perspective, uh, I'm much more an idealist, right? Okay. I want the world to move into the better. UX. I think it's, I think that it's absurd that I have to, that I have to like peer VPCs. Like this is 2019. Why do I like, I want these two things to talk. I told Mm -hmm. you I want these two things to talk. Right. Why do I have to like, why do I have to do?
0: But you're so you're not enamored of the serverless AWS. Like I think the serverless stuff was pretty futuristic. Yeah, That's no, so like, serverless is, totally novel.
1: Yeah, serverless I think is really really fascinating. I think that it's a really immature architectural pattern today, and that we need that zero tool. Like <laughs> the transition from monolith to microservices is already incredibly hard, in large part because tooling does not exist to cope with that. And now you're going to do even more. You're going to take well, it to an even bigger extreme. No, tree.
0: but it's something different. Like the serverless it paradigm. Is and it isn't.
1: So I look at serverless as being two, largely two categories of thing that are conflated, uh, or that are frequently conflated together. So one of the categories of thing is I want to write only business logic. That's been a goal of software engineering since we, since uh, you know we invented programming languages, right? We we invented the first one, and then we said, oh, this is real bad. <laughs> Let's. Let, I want to write right. Whether or not we ever get to that goal, I don't think any particular architectural or deployment paradigm is is going to solve that problem. And then there's the other half of, of what serverless platforms are today, which is the operational side. The I want the, it to have uh, logging and monitoring and alerting out of the box. I want it to have the visibility. I want to have uh, scaling to zero mm-hmm. and automatically scaling. Right, These are all things, right? So, ideal, yeah. I want to be able to scale up and down, and hopefully, I could scale to zero because that would be really nice if I could. Yeah. So, if you look at those two sets of things, so I, so I, you know, let's discount the business logic only. I don't think that that's a realistic goal in in the near term. Then we start to look at that platform that that is serverless, right? And the, a large majority of the features that are there look very similar to the mesh features. And so then in my mind it comes down to okay so then what is the so what are the differences here and and they boil down to a couple different things this this focus on small deployment units and in particular the requirement that basically you rewrite code any any new architectural pattern that says hey if you want to use me you need to rewrite everything that you have is a non-starter what are you talking about like rewriting in lambdas and yeah stuff? so like i can't take my monolith and split my monolith into lambdas yeah. that doesn't it doesn't decompose that way right
0: well okay so here- like the
1: instead you you get told no go re-implement it right but i mean banks are still running Cobol mainframes they're like they're not going to re-implement everything to go to lambda so you need something that gives the feature set of that platform right the 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 you want the auto scaling you want the operational things out of the box I don't think that that should be coupled with the uh, deployment unit that is that small.
0: I mean, I, I appreciate what you just said. I think what is interesting about the Lambda model is it's basically like, look, if you're all in on AWS, here is a very smooth interconnected developer experience. Yes, like, so you that get part of Dynamo it is really DB. interesting. You get Dynamo DB, you get Amazon Elastic this right. and Elastic that, and it's all connected with Lambda functions. It all works fairly smoothly. Yeah. Yes, you have to interface. Well, so that was
1: the App Engine cell too, right? App Engine was this whole. If you write Python, but it, but it if wasn't. You write, yeah, it, it but, was. It was this walled
0: garden. They had it was super walled garden, but it was also like just not as expansive as the AWS. Yes, vision. The AWS that is very true. Is like we give you everything in the yes. kitchen sink and tons of other stuff, and like it's just super interconnected and super diverse. And uh, Google App Engine back in the day was like, yeah, just a Python application, which was yes. fine for a lot of people. It sure, yeah, it's just, I, a, I that, that, that was more there. of yeah. a marketing issue, but AWS totally. has great, has good marketing. So people can actually adopt this. Totally. Anyway, totally. I, I mean, no, uh, I think
1: it's, yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. ReInvent is next right. week. That's <laughs> not reinvent. I forgot. Oh God, I thought no, it was at reinvent. No, <laughs> like, yeah. Lambda. Yeah. I look, Lambda's are, Lambda and in general, the serverless idea is really compelling, right? Yeah. The idea that we need to be able to,
0: but. It's super proprietary, super blatantly, like we're locking you in and you are exactly. never getting out and again, you're going to love it.
1: Yeah. And I just think that the, in and, and then that aside, just the tech, the, the mechanics of it today, the units of edit are wrong. The, the unit. So I do a lot of API design. That's, that's part of what I did in Istio. That's. Uh in a lot of modeling I like type theory, like I said, right? Uh, and so unit of edit, what is the thing that I have to change and that I have ownership over is is one of the things that we think about a lot with respect to API design. Unit of edit in Lambda as it is today just isn't right. And it doesn't conform with the tooling and it doesn't really conform with deployments. So I totally agree that you want this heavily interconnected thing. That's like the right, that's the nirvana that we want to get to, right? Is the, all the all the cool stuff that I need to do in my app just works right there, mm-hmm. and I don't really have to think about it. It's that idea of now, I get to the focus way, on the business. W- that's logic.
0: what it's like working at Google, right? You just import a library and it all works magically. No, okay, yeah, maybe exactly, not. yeah. That's exactly it <laughs> okay, maybe not. Jeff Dean walks by and he types on your keyboard <laughs> yeah. and then everything works. Yeah, he's like, oh, you forgot this import. You yeah. forgot to import the magic thing. Yeah,
1: that's one of the things that is most disappointing, maybe, to people when they join Google is really? that it turns out the sausage factory, like sausage, like making sausage, is nasty business, and it's Uh, messy everywhere, hmm. right? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, there definitely are, you know, Google has done a good job of handling a lot of the problems that serverless tries to address. So some there are like internal projects that are how we, you know, how you would build software as a developer at Google today, internally. And I think those models that they're using, which you can extrapolate from App Engine, if App Engine was developed in 2008, now jump forward 11 years, if they've been developing at that pace for the same time. And those models center on write the unit that you've been writing, write a service. It should be small. It should be focused on the business logic. We have a lot of those libraries that handle a lot of the, the other things that have been built up over time. Sure. Right. But you're going to write your here. You have an object. You own that object. This service owns that object, write all this stuff and put it together and then we'll worry about how it actually gets deployed. Yes. We'll look at the dependencies that you have. We'll look at what it's using. We'll look at the things that it's consuming and, and stuff like that, and we'll figure out where we, where we will actually want to do some, some deployments for how we want to assemble the binary, things like that. You don't need to think about it. Yeah, That kind of a model is much more compelling because the tooling that I am used to dealing with is the same. How do I debug this binary? Well, I just run the binary, and I attach my debugger to it how do you debug a distributed Lambda application on your, devu- on your box, right? This was always Quit. the problem that, uh, that App Engine had. App Engine didn't have local debug. Like, they, they had a local debug environment, but it didn't match the App Engine environment. And so one of the most painful things that we heard from users continuously was this, well, it works in, the, in, your, in your App Engine dev that I ran on my local box, it works, but then I deploy it to the server, and it doesn't work, right? This is a fundamentally hard problem, uh, and, Remo- it, and it manifests remote so, debugging. Well, not even just remote debugging, but how do you provide this environment? Because you just, you know, part of the appeal of Lambda is that it's this highly interconnected environment uh-huh. with all these services plugged in. How do I ever debug that? Like, how do I? What's my developer? Like, what's my debug workflow? Mm. It doesn't like I'm used to. I'm used to running and processing my terminal and attaching GDB. How do I debug it? But if you go with a more traditional deployment model, but you handle a lot of the operational pain. Then suddenly you can start to unify this development experience, and and you can start to use the tooling that you're used to. But you can get a lot of the benefits that you may a lot of the the platform benefits of serverless, right? So if I were going to revise, then my two split between the, you know to, the three, which is the third one being you know your to your point, kind of that interconnected glue side of it, right? The the dream platform, bit. your
0: cloud nirvana,
1: exactly. Then no, you know service mesh like wouldn't address that, for example, or but. And I think that that is a desirable thing. I don't think that that is necessarily predicated on the the current incarnation of of serverless.
0: Zach, great talking to you. Great conversation. Super. We went we went over, but great, yeah, great. It'll great be great a nice nice incendiary
1: thing to to end on. <laughs> it'll be, I'm I'm looking forward to all the the serverless people. Wonderful. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay.
0: Email has been around for longer than I've been alive, but there's been surprisingly little innovation in inbox management. SaneBox is a new way of looking at your inbox that puts features like snoozing and one-click unsubscribe and follow-up reminders as first-class citizens. If you are overwhelmed by your inbox and you're almost ready to declare email bankruptcy, try out SaneBox. In the onboarding process, SaneBox analyzes your emails and helps you sort them into categories. You can get a free 14-day trial and a $25 credit by going to sanebox.com slash S-E-D. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com slash S-E-D. These days, I spend more time in my inbox than I do in front of my coding environment. And back when I was programming a lot, I would spend hours configuring my coding environment because i wanted to maximize productivity if you spend as much time managing email as i do it's crazy not to set yourself up for success with your inbox so stop the craziness get sane with sanebox go to sanebox.com sed and get a free 14-day trial as well as a 25 dollars credit thank you to sanebox for being a sponsor of software engineering daily